this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. And this episode, Jay, was selected by our union. It is a roundtable, and we actually have more than one person. <laughs> it is a full-on four-seated table. It is. Legit. Joining us, they've both been here before. We're welcoming them back for this roundtable, which I'll divulge in a moment. Welcome back. Jeremy, a man who was just here not too long ago. Only a couple of weeks. Few Only weeks, a couple maybe. weeks. And joining us, I think it was for a, a roundtable last year, wasn't it, Kyle Bittar? Yeah, it was for the Soundgarden in the 80s. Yes, so that's the perfect lead-in. This episode is our second 80s Origins episode. So we take an 80s band that started out, maybe people didn't, you know, they were underground band, and then maybe got much more popular in the 90s, which is the era that we primarily cover. We wanted to dig into the history of Soundgarden last year, dig into those early albums maybe people aren't as familiar with you know as opposed to bad motor finger and super unknown and we wanted to do the same thing this year and put it up we put it up for a boat jay put three bands up three kind of different bands mm-hmm. for this round table um the choices were megadeth dinosaur jr and the flaming lips oh very different yes all different trajectories different sounds um, all of them use guitars and drums and basses. That's the sim- That's where the similarities. And end. all, even though it had careers in the eighties, they sold a lot more records in the nineties. Yeah. So like Megadeth, for example, their biggest selling albums are like the first two that they released in the nineties, <laughs> even though they were established by the, you know, late eighties and flaming lips, you know, yep. I don't have to explain that. <laughs> they, they got, they blew up. They uh, were in Apple commercials. So, Dinosaur Jr. won seven votes, uh, Flaming Lips four votes, Megadeth two votes. So we're going to talk about 80s Dinosaur Jr. That's why Kyle and Jeremy are here, because uh, we didn't want to do it by ourselves. Uh, We're just, this is not fun if we're just talking about three albums worth of material by ourselves. We need some input. We need perspectives. Especially because I have not really listened to 80s Dinosaur Jr. as much as I as, no as much as I've listened yeah, to 90s yeah, Dinosaur no. Jr. Like that's yes. a, that's kind of a, a weak spot for me. I've listened to the albums both in preparation for the show and previous to this, but yeah. they've never really been in my rotation. They were more like I got into, and we can talk about this, but I got into Giant Dinosaur Jr. when I saw the Field of Pain video. Okay. I had, I didn't know who Dinosaur Jr. was or anything, and then I think it was around the time. I, I, I probably met you, Jay, and you were the biggest Dinosaur Jr. fan I knew, uh, which is not saying much because I didn't know anybody no, who was a yeah, Dinosaur yeah, Jr. Yeah, fan. No, no. When did you get into them, Jay? Yeah, I, I got into Where You Been. I don't, maybe I picked it up at the library. I, I can't come up with another more believable story for myself other than I was. <laughs> going through the rock session at the public library, looking for CDs to borrow and pick this up and um, fell in love with that record. And then I bought green mind, not that long after used. And then from that point forward, I, you know, was pretty much buying everything. Um, I even have a Jay Massis in the fog record. Um, but I think also like you, I was a little afraid of the eighties stuff i like sampled it here and there and i was like i don't know this is kind of gonna ruin the band for me if i if i don't like it you know what i mean like i right. like, love those 90s records so much that i was afraid that it would make me not like the band as much to go back and listen to the to the early stuff just by sampling it um gotcha 
So I kind of avoided the 80s records. Interesting. That's a little weird. Let's find out where our guests uh, come in on this. Kyle, when did you first get into Dinosaur Jr.? So I probably hit them around the same time as Jay with the Where You Been album. Uh, I'm not sure what song it was that I actually heard first, but I just remember it was either like Out There, Start Chopping, one of those two. And I was just drawn right into them immediately. Um, I played the hell out of that album on a regular basis. And then the one after that, the one with Feel the Pain. I can't remember the name of it now off the top of my head. What is Without that a sound? Yes. Uh, I got into that one. And then I sort of dropped off for a while. And then I got back into them again during their sort of 2000s renaissance that they had. And I went back, started listening to a lot of the 90s stuff again. And then from there, I jumped back to the 80s and started to listen to their earlier albums. So, Got yeah, it. kind of a weird, weird trajectory for me. And we have covered the, th- I guess it's the third or, f- or is it the fourth 90s album that before Dinosaur Jr. was on hiatus for Jay Masses in the Fog. Um, mm-hmm. They did, is it four albums that they put out in, in the 90s? Starting with Green uh, Mind. Green Mind, Where You Been, Without a Sound, and Hand It Over. Yeah, okay. So we did Hand It Over very early on in the podcast. And I had never listened to that album until you guys actually reviewed it. Interesting. Okay. Um, like I said, like it's super weird, because I jumped in when they sort of had their renaissance again, but I always yes. liked Jane Massis in the Fog. I've got Witch albums, which has Jay Massis on drums. But I never really jumped into older Dinosaur Jr. until probably within the last probably 10 years. Cool. Jeremy, tell us about your experience with uh, discovering Dinosaur Jr. I think the first time that I heard them, um, it was one song over and over again. And it, uh, there was a, so a friend of mine from Cincinnati his girlfriend lives closer to me, so closer to where I lived when I moved. So she would drive me to school almost every morning. And uh, she would basically, the drive was long enough for her to like listen to um, Blasphemous Rumors from uh, Depeche Mode <laughs> and then um, Quicksand from the whatever, Whatever's Cool With Me compilation from Dinosaur Jr. Mm-hmm. And one, I didn't know that that was... Um, actually a David Bowie song. And two, it drove me crazy. Just kept hearing it over and over again. So that was in uh, like late 92. It was the beginning of the 92, 93 school year. And then by 93, 97X started playing Start Chopping. And I fell in love with that, went out and got the album immediately and then realized, hey, this is the band that that she kept playing that song from. And I thought, well, maybe I'll give them another listen. So I went back and I got... um, I got whatever's cool with me, loved everything on that, went back and got, I just started going backwards through the catalog. Um, even so far to, I think, uh, before I found their first album, I didn't even know it existed because, you know, there wasn't the internet back then. It really. wasn't easy to find stuff like that. Uh, I <clears throat> would look at the credits on the History album. History of the band. Uh, whatever happened to Barlow. And he said, oh, you mean the Sebado guy? So that sent me on another... <laughs> You know, I just went crazy with Sebado stuff, but then I found that that self-titled, I found a cassette of the self-titled Dinosaur album that didn't say Dinosaur Jr. on it. It was still brand new in cellophane at uh, Camelot Records uh, near Tri-County Mall over here in, near Cincinnati. And um, I mean, every every time I dug back and got an older older album, I was like, wow, this is like increasingly lower quality, but I still loved it. Like because it was it was like the lo-fi stuff that I started to like from Sebado as as I dug back, I was finding with Dinosaur Jr. as well. So yeah, and then I just followed him. I mean, I've continued to buy the albums and uh try to see them or Jay Maskus when they were, you know, in town and stuff like that. So I didn't really uh let them go. Got really excited when they got back together. So I've, I wish I could say I've followed him since the beginning, but I think I caught him like ninety-three at the earliest. Well, let me let me ask you guys, have you gone back, you and Kyle, and have you gone back and checked out Deep Wound? I have. Now, that is bad quality recording coupled with just loud, loud stuff. 
Um, yeah. I, I don't know if I can take a lot of that, but I do. I mean, I love when they go that way every once in a while, like uh, the cover of Chunks on, um, on like, I think it's on some, a couple of things, but it's on Fossils as well, where it's just, you know, where you have, uh, I think Lou Barlow was probably screaming on that one because he did a lot of the early screaming stuff and a lot of the singing in general. Uh, but yeah, just a whole album of, of that stuff from Deep Wound. Uh, I, I haven't been able to make it all the way through in one sitting. What about you, Kyle? I did not. Okay, that's fine. I haven't either. I mean, I, I'm aware that it exists. I know that it's a hardcore, thrashcore band, whatever you want to call it, with Jay and Lou, with a couple of different people in it. And it, I mean, by all accounts, it's just, it's not Dinosaur Jr. Although, I mean, I mean, obviously gave them the ability to play instruments out when they were young. Um. I don't know how old was Jay Massis at that point. The bat started in '82, and he was born in '65. So I mean, he was only like what 17 years old or something like that. So you know, that's not bad. Also, I do want to point out if you go to the Jay Massis uh, picture or the Jay Massis page on Wikipedia, his picture is playing the Squire uh, <laughs> guitar that I have, not his purple Fender signature model just want to point that out and he prefers the squire he does as i do i endorse the squire so it's the the white with the gold yep nice i don't know why but those were super cheap for a very like uh for maybe like a year after they came out i think people were like ah it's the squire yeah and i got it off of reverb for like 200 bucks like nothing and now they're they're like five six hundred dollars i mean hey nothing else it makes nice wall art exactly (laughs) i'm just that's what i'm doing i'm just collecting offset guitars as wall art i'm not actually playing anything uh jay had you ever teched out deep wound the band okay i didn't think so no 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 i can't imagine you uh i i was leery to go back into the dinosaur junior 80s uh going beyond that was just not on my sure list so originally, as Jeremy mentioned, they were called Dinosaur for the first release. Um, however, there was actually already a band called Dinosaur. And they ended up having to change, well, add the junior to the name. Um, but I think they that was rec- a good change. You think so? I think so. It's kind of funny. It is like, kind of funny. It's quirky and funny. Like Dinosaur on its own is like... It sounds like a, I don't know, proto metal band from the early seventies or something, right? Um, so that album uh, originally recorded by the band for five hundred dollars um, in a studio in Northampton, Massachusetts, for uh, Gerald Cosloy, who was the gentleman who ran. Um, Homestead Records, and uh, it was released on July 16th, 1985. And let's talk about this record. I mean, this is the, you know, the core lineup, Jay, Lou, and Murph. Jay's credited with vocals, guitar, and percussion. Lou is bass, vocals, and synthesizer. And Murph is drums, vocal, and synthesizer. How much synthesizer are these guys playing on this record? Apparently a lot. What in the uh, world? It barely shows. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're both, I mean, they, maybe they each played one note right. on different songs. Some kind of texture part. I must have a reprinted version because mine just, mine says Dinosaur Jr. And then yeah. it's called. So. Yep. They, um. Yeah, they had, they, when they did a repress or whatever, they ended up having to change it. Um, but the, the album is still called Dinosaur, even though they changed the name of the band to Dinosaur Jr. So technically, it's not a self-titled album after that. Let's talk about it. Uh, impressions, going back and listening to this record, and really what we want to figure out is like, do you hear the sound of Dinosaur Jr. of what they would become in these early records? So let me start with you. Uh, Kyle, going back and listening to the first Dinosaur Jr. album, what's your impressions of that record? That's messy. Messy sounding with a lot of clashing sounds. There's 
I found that listening to it, there were some folk song sort of sounds, a little bit of rock, lots of hardcore type stuff. Uh, to me, I could hear early Sonic Youth uh, sounds to it. And yeah, I mean, overall, there wasn't a whole lot of stuff that you had that you could see Dinosaur Jr. coming forward with in due time. Um, you know, the guitars are a little bit melodic and you've got that sort of dual vocal between uh, Jay and Lou Barlow. Um, but overall, I didn't really hear a lot of stuff that uh, that related to the Dinosaur Jr. that we know them as today. So. Jeremy, uh, what about you? What are your impressions going back and listening to this record? Yeah, I'd say you hear a lot more um, on the Sonic Youth end than, than Dinosaur Jr. But um, I do think like a song like The Leper, um, I think has a lot of has a lot of things in it that make me think of not Dinosaur Jr. that you hear in the 90s per se, but at least what they were evolving into uh, before the, the breakup at the end of the, of the 80s. Um, uh, like I, there are some things on that album that feel like a logical first step to get to um the, the next album the one after this but uh but yeah it, it still stands very far apart from everything everything else in their catalog even the stuff adjacent to it um it's 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 pretty noisy and messy i mean i still love it but um uh probably the the one thing that that really makes it stand apart from everything else is uh that Jay Maskus wrote, I think, pretty much every song on this album. Yes. Uh, but didn't really, I think he maybe sang lead on a, a couple songs, but I mean, most of the lead is, is, uh, is Lou Barlow. And um, that really changes with the next album. Right. Yeah. He, Jay Maskus wrote every song on the record, but did not sing every song. And sometimes there are split vocals, and sometimes it's just Lou. And this is the last, this is the only record like that. I think everyone going forward is either like Lou has like one or two songs or none when he's not in the band. Uh, and that's even in the 2000s, like when they reunited, he would get like one song or two songs on the second half of the record. Jay, I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I didn't, in, I really did not enjoy the production. Yeah. However, I did enjoy finding the little beats and bits and pieces of songs that I went, oh, that's totally, oh, yeah. I, I hear that. Like Repulsion, I think, is a good example of a song that, that to me does not sound far off from where Green Mind was going to be, or, or Bug, which we're going to talk about later. The silence taps my elbow, it's good, at least that's what she said, I could run but I stand and read it. There's there's like little bits and pieces. Did you hear that as well? I did. Uh, you can hear even the like the guitar tone isn't dialed in yet. I don't know what he's using on this. It sounds like maybe like a dirty Fender amp, so it has more of that brittle kind of uh, tone versus the wall of Marshall super saturated you know tone that we've all come to know and love. So it, it just changes the flavor of everything. So. A song like forget forget the swan even though that riff you could hear him playing that now it's just tonally so different it just you're just in a different space like it's just a different idea um songwriting wise yeah i can hear bits and pieces like you said um leper forget the swan um repulsion like you can hear like oh, okay this is the same band i get i get it um i'm with kyle i'm thrown by the the folk bits in here little pieces and parts of songs that cats in a bowl for example where it's like you can hear like they're trying to figure out like how do we take 
folk rock and mix it with punk and create something new. And I think on this record, they're like, you literally see that happening where it's, mm, this isn't quite matched up, right? This is like a prototype. You haven't quite figured out how to put it together in a way that's like completely unique and in them. Um, and then just vocally, it's kind of all over the place. Like you don't hear a consistent, I guess, confidence or even voice here. It's like, they're both trying to figure out how to sing and sing together. And there's some screaming and which, you know, pretty much leaves the band after these, these early eighties records. Um, so yeah, you can hear the bits and parts, um, but it's not fully cooked, cooked yet. It's, it's, it's a little early. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good example of um, a band that is really like developing in front of your eyes. Like this is, you know, they're not fully formed at this point in terms of their abilities, as opposed to like some artists come out and they're just like, boom, but you know that there's been work behind the scenes before that, but this is so raw. I think it's interesting, you know, that they were able to, forge what would be a very particular sound the way that jay masses sings and plays guitar is so specific um his vocal cadence and his melodies that when you hear it here and there it's like ooh, it's like yeah but overall i i i cannot imagine like going back to this record often for enjoyment maybe a couple songs here and there if they were like i'd be curious if they if what their set lists look like these days and if they anything makes it into their sets and how so they actually, sound with a full stack. I actually went back and took a look at some of their recent set lists mm-hmm. and they do jump back to this album and play Gargoyle on a regular basis. Wow. Really? Which is actually one of my favorite songs on the album. Um, but yeah, they, they still, they plunk this in every now and again. So you yeah, can also I, hear um, the, his playing is more primitive too. It's not just the sound like and the solos have less notes, you know, that the, the, he's got the fuzz going on and the effects and like the dive bombs and that kind of thing going on. But he, he's not, he's simpler and just, I don't know if the, he's developing like his style and like being more confident playing like blazing solos, but you can also just hear that aspect where it's, it's not as over the top as we want, as it, I would want. Yeah, and Gargoyle is is an example. Like that lead that's in that song, it's a cool lead, but that's a very early lead. Like you know what I mean? Right. That sounds like a young a youngster playing that lead Uh, because he would have been shredding that thing ten years later. Um, so this comes out like I mentioned, eighty five, July of eighty five, and then um, so I guess around this time the band was just kind of you know getting started as far as shows playing regionally in their area and they were also making trips down to new york city and the first time they went down to new york city sonic youth watched them and they were not impressed (laughs) and made them know it made it known like i guess because maybe deep wound had some sort of i don't know if maybe they played down in new york city or something like that i don't know why sonic youth would even bother to go out to dinosaur jr or dinosaur if they didn't know who they were but anyway they went to see them and then they said they kept coming back and got and they saw them get progressively better. Like, oh, and so I think that's what you know, you get um in in eighty seven, about a year and a half later, you get the follow up, you're living all over me. Now, this is one of those records that is considered a a touch point or a touchstone for alternative rock. I mean, it's in, um, or it's listed on like the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. It's in, there's been a book written about it for the 33 and a third series. Um, it's been in every like spin in the number 31 on the hundred greatest albums between 85 and 2005. Um, pitchfork named it number 46 of the, all of the eighties. That's a big, not just wow. holy top 100 albums of the 80s. You're Living All Over Me is number 46 from Pitchfork. And Alternative Press ranked at number five 
My on goodness. the top 99 albums of 85 to 95. I don't believe I I have a hard time with that. 85 to 95 and this is number 5. Yeah. That's Let's talk about this record. Jay, Kyle, Jeremy, you're living all over me. Um this is obviously a step up in production uh from what the $500 debut uh, sounds like I think they actually m- maybe went into a real studio to record <laughs> this because um, they recorded it for SST uh, instead of Homestead and it was recorded with Wharton Tears who um, I believe has worked with a lot of bands uh, I, of this like of this like sound like you know the 80s 90s underground like we're talking about Helmet and quicksand in the in the 90s gumball unrest sonic youth um he did some early white zombie and um got an interesting resume he's worked for he's been a drummer for laurie anderson so he uh, he upped their recording game on this one so let me ask you guys i'll start with you this time jeremy uh what works best for you on this record in terms of like the dinosaur junior development and sound oh first and foremost it's just the the wall of sound approach um but uh but i mean what, what really struck me is you know because i was going back i think i don't think i went back in backwards order i think i got this before i got bug so this was my first 80s dinosaur junior album and uh the 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 way that the album starts which is like the over over the top wah wall of guitars and noise and then um lou barlow's you know screaming whatever it is that he's screaming um plus the uh just looking at the liner notes and wondering if if the song title was a typo or not um <laughs> just <laughs> immediately grabbed my attention um and uh uh yeah, it was it was so different to me from what I had already gotten used to from, uh, you know, the albums from you know nineteen ninety one to nineteen ninety three. You know, I started you know trying to figure out. Well, really, I was kind of wondering how much of of uh, once I got to the Lou Barlow tracks, um, that's really what set me off on the Lou Barlow Sebado direction, is I was just like, this is this is so crazy. Um, you know who wrote this? Oh, who is this guy? And then I started asking around, and somebody told me. So, um, I don't know. I just I there seemed to be a little bit more, even though it's still kind of messy at points. Um, there seemed to be a little bit more of a singular vision with this album. Um, like you said, the last one you had kind of the 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 country and folk stuff, like the legitimate like ear bleeding country type stuff. Um, uh, you know, here they really seem to find. Uh, find their identity, or at least their identity for the 80s and the Kyle, what are your impressions of this record going back to it? I didn't mind it. Um, I found it a lot cleaner and obviously more well-produced than the first album. Um, You know, I mean, the one thing that I liked about it was that they sort of adopted more of that mid-tempo melodic hardcore sound, um, sort of in line with the Husker Du type stuff. You've got songs like The Long Lose, uh, Tar Pit. Um, Those songs reminded me a lot of you know, a lot of the, uh, the Husker do this, that sort of sound. Um, and it wasn't abrasive, 
it was noisy, but it was still melodic in a way. Um, and then, you know, some of the stuff by Lou Barlow, I just could not get into. Uh, Polito, I think is what it was called. The, that weird experimental track that closes out the album. Just, it just did nothing. Um, and I'm glad that it was actually at the end of it. So. Jay, had you gone back to this record for? No, and Kyle hit on one of the reasons why. I mean, I I had sampled it over the years, but I hadn't spent much time with it. Um, I think Kyle hit on a couple things there that, um, and Jeremy as well. So, for example, I'm not a huge Lou Barlow fan. So, a song like Polito, like if I'm sampling the record and I hear that, I'm like, no, I'm out. Like, not into it. Um, and it's funny. It starts off super aggressive. Um, like Jeremy mentioned with little furry things, the intro to that is screaming and like this crazy noise, but then it clicks and all of a sudden it's like in a moment, there's the sound, right? When that song gets the verse and he starts singing, Jay starts singing. You're like, that's the dinosaur junior sound. There it is. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. this is the first time we hear it. Um, so I think that was super cool. I think there's some great guitar work on here i think um cracked raisins lose i mean those are epic guitar solos uh so cool um i think it sounds pretty good you know we'll talk about bug in a second but it's definitely progression production wise you can understand a little better what's going on vocally it sounds more confident i just think and then consistently through the whole record you just get a really good sense of what their melodic um, sensibilities are like what they how they sing how they construct melodies what types of notes they use what kind of phrases they use that becomes very solidified on this record and i think it really starts to pull together um from that aspect too so you know there's still some bits and pieces that are you know a little noisier a little more aggressive from the first record that carry over that they slowly start to refine out the Lou Barlow stuff. Obviously that comes to a head in a couple records. Um, but I think the core of it, it sounds like to me, like the first dinosaur junior record for sure. Yeah. I, I agree with you. And I feel like, I don't know how to describe what they're doing exactly. Maybe you can chime in on this, but a song like the lung, it's like got that strum and like upbeat shuffling kind of, push to it it's all it's it's got a very specific dinosaur junior feel to it and i don't know what it is exactly i don't know how to describe it other than it sounds like dinosaur junior and no other band quite does what whatever is happening on that song i don't know if it's the way that lou barlow plays um or does he play with a pick or not i'm trying to remember if i've seen him play with a pick or not because that can affect like you know the the way you play bass with your fingers versus a pick can affect the sound of the bass and i think he generally does because he's playing mostly chords he's trying to play as loud as possible right to to be heard so i feel like that (laughs) which every bass player of course does um that might have some contribution to what makes them the sound so much different um so have you have you ever seen uh have you ever seen them perform the lung live no like there's that that section at the end where they're they just kind of repeat themselves for a while but each time they they get to the end of their their repeat they um uh it's it's like the guitar just goes into overdrive it's just like super loud and brash
crazy to see them before. I swear every time I see them do it in concert, it's like they challenge themselves each time, each time like, hey, how, how can we make that part louder? How can we make it to the point where when we do that, you can't even tell that music is playing because it's just like this wall of white noise. And yeah. a, you can kind of hear some cymbals behind it. Um, it's, it's insane. I, I think it was one of, one of the times, one of the last times that I went into the pit at a Dinosaur Junior show and I was like, okay, I'm done. I can't be down here. I don't have earplugs in. Uh, my ears are literal. Uh, my le- my ears are going to bleed if I stay down here. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that might might have been uh, actually a Jay Maskus in the fall concert where I made that decision. But yeah, it's sometimes they just or they just challenge themselves to see how obnoxious they can be, and it's it's hilarious. I do think you mentioned the wall of noise. Some of that earlier that's still the earlier uh, production sounds like. Little Furry Things, the majority of that song is cool. I don't love that intro. I mean, I understand like they're trying to create this contrast, but it's like such a nasty sound to open the record with. Yeah. That. Perfect. So, <laughs> That's what yeah. I'm saying. I think I, I went back to this. I was like, hey, I, I really like this band. I should check out the their 80s stuff. And I, pr- I put this record on. I was like, well, nope, I'm out. I'm good. I'll go back to where you've been. It's almost like they're they're saying like this is going to kick the people out, yeah, who are who are not that interested and are not going to like sit through and like it's almost a test to throw that wall of wah noise and it's a real thin wah noise too. It's like you know it's a lot of static and frequent high frequency. So this record has some long intros. You know that's one example. I think Sludge Fest, the long those both have pretty long intros too which i didn't go through and compare all their records but i don't feel like they did that a lot after this like i felt like the songwriting got sharper and they would jam it in the ends or bridges would be weird but like the material in general gets a little more tight and compact yeah maybe they just got more comfortable with singing you know ready to get into yeah, it yeah right it's like that that Dana Carvey bit where he's looking at the microphone like he's not really sure what to think about it. He's walking right. away and not starting the song. Does I anybody think- know why Just Like Heaven was added onto this particular release on the re-releases going forward? Because I remember hearing it on Absolute 90s, which I think came out almost like nine years after this. And then they went back and added it onto the re-releases of this. Well, it, was, it was either a B-side or a standalone single back around the time of this album and uh i originally picked it up on fossils which was i think the last thing that ssp issued for them or maybe right before bug so it has their cover of last right of um uh chunks and it has this, this cover and um keep the glove and i can't remember what else is on that thing but uh yeah i, I was kind of i mean my my original version didn't have anything tacked on the end. And then I think when I got it on CD, it had uh, show me the way. Okay. A little strange that they switched that around. Yeah. So here's the explanation. The original vinyl version has no cover. The original CD version included show me the way. And then the 2005 reissue on merge included the just like heaven single, which was originally, I think just a seven inch. I don't I don't think it was um on an album and then they added to it later. And how about that sudden stop? What? On that cover. On that cover. Oh yeah. Cover. <laughs> Probably one of the worst things I've ever done is just suddenly stop it like that, but it's again <laughs> It's very replacements-esque in that sense. That they just were like, all right, we're done. And just stop. Um, So this leads us into the album, which comes out the next year, Bug. And this was recorded at Fort Apache Studios in Cambridge with the the team of Sean Slade and Paul Coldery. Is that how you pronounce it? Coldery? I don't know. Um, Released uh, also on SST, like the previous record. In October of 1998, so it was less than a year between You're Living All Over Me and Bug. This was also 
is or all is listed on the 100 or 1001 albums you must hear before you die um it is quote unquote a fan favorite but jay masses says it's his least favorite dinosaur jr album interesting maybe let's that's talk about the stressful memories Maybe it's the stressful memories. Is this when um, Lou applied a bass guitar to Jay's head? Is this, is this well, era? It, I, one of the things that's remarkable about this record is, are, is one song that stood out to me was No Bones and how loud the bass is. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I don't think you get a bass this loud ever again on a Dinosaur Junior record. Maybe that was a point of contention. Yeah, I think Lou was on his way out by the time they were even recording this. I think Jay had said some things the year or so leading up to it that, you know, made it pretty clear to Lou that it was, you know, it's Jay's band and he was just along for the ride for a little while. Which had to be hurtful for two guys that were in a hardcore band as teenagers. Yeah, yeah. You so, definitely hear the. Um, so I, I think on "You're Living All Over Me," you hear them find their sound. I think my summary of "Bug" is you hear them become a studio band. Like you hear them understand how to present what they do as a production like a unique production. So there's layering, there's like over the top, you know, overdubs that Jay would continue to do on, on, on records. There's different tones and guitar sounds and just sonically, there's a lot more going on here. The drum sounds so much better. Yeah. Than the first two records. Like you can actually hear the full drum kit when the guitars, like there are times when the guitars are so loud or the bass or whatever, it's just like, all you hear is like a tiny snap of like a snare and some washy cymbals. Whereas here, it's so much clearer. Um, Yeah, you know, with with, uh, Jay starting out as a drummer, um, you know, this this is that first album where you actually get to, you get kind of the impression that, you know, he you know, said, you know, I'd really like to hear some more of the drums, if at all possible. That in in uh in Yeah We Know, which is I think the longest song on the album, there's uh that part like that they do after a couple of verses, where it's like just kind of like rolling drum and then everything kind of cuts out, and then there's like one loud like like snare hit. It's like boom, you know, just like really, really loud. Um, I'd never heard anything like that ever until I heard that album. Um, and uh, it, I mean, it just gave me chills. I mean, I know the song might be a little long, you know, and it's, and it's a little bit repetitive, but uh, I think that moment, I think four songs into the album, I was like, you know, they, you know, they were definitely taking advantage of some things in the studio that they didn't have the opportunity to use before. Yeah, they put like a big shotgun snare reverb on just a single beat, which is really cool. Yeah. So, Kyle, is this the 80s album that you own? You said you only own one, right? I actually, I own Dinosaur. Oh, okay. That is the only 80s album that I own by Interesting. Okay. So, what are your impressions of this record? It's fine. Um, Overall, I mean, I think that Freak Scene, and I hate to jump on like that sort of bandwagon, but to me, that's one of the most perfect pop rock, alternative rock songs that you'll ever come across. 
Um, it's amazing. It's, it's bouncy. It's got a good beat to it. Everything about it's good. As a whole bug, I would probably say that I really like the first half of it, but the last half just falls apart for me completely. Um, I don't know what it is. I don't mind everything up until about Pawn Song, but after that, I just, it, I get bored. I actually like the second album, uh, You're Living All Over Me. I like that. That's probably my favorite 80s Dinosaur Junior album song. Or, sorry, album. Sorry. Same. Same. Interesting. Do, you do notice on the on the pawn on pawn song that that actually for me that was like the the first time where I heard so you know going back through the catalog I heard that and I said man this is you can tell that Green Mind is next when you hear pawn song like it's like that to me is like the song where I'm like man this is where he this is where Green Mind comes from that's his mindset yeah, yeah. I think pawn song is a great example because it has that like. There's dynamics. There is a thoughtful production happening between the acoustic guitar that he's picking and then throwing in the electric guitar on top of that. Like you're getting arrangements now, which it's not just bashing through heavy distortion and some, you know, yeah, it has chaos. That, that, it has that bit where there's like the kind of like the line of like feedback and guitar going in the background. And there's like this nice, like sweet, like melody playing over mm-hmm. top of it and he does you know he does like a phrase and then the drums go crazy and then they do it again but you know it's it's like different phrases you know like three or four different phrases you know uh getting back into the body of the song again um that's i mean that's probably the most composed song on this album yeah absolutely and then i hit something like don't and i'm just like i don't know i I'm assuming that this is a Lou Barlow song. I don't really, I don't know off the top of my head. But to he me, it sings like it and plays bass. But it's all Jay Maskus. But Jay Maskus wrote it. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, he, yeah, he wrote this I whole just, record. This song just, it, it destroys the album for me almost. I just, I don't like the sound of it. And I like a lot of heavy screaming stuff. This song just does nothing for me whatsoever, though. I think it could have been two minutes shorter. That's for certain. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think uh, I think that Lou sings it because Lou is still the, the only qualified screamer in the group at this point. I don't think that Jay really. The first time that you really hear Jay scream is on uh, I think the little baby on the uh, whatever's cool with me uh, mm-hmm. compilation or EP or whatever you want to call it. Um, up until then, I mean, even in concert, uh, if there's anything that requires screaming, it's, it's Lou Barlow steps up and does it. So. I couldn't do it. Jay, I know you started with Green Mind, but how, when did you go back to Bug? Or did you at, at any point during when you were originally listening? No. I mean, beyond sampling, when it came on streaming, I hadn't spent any time with it. What about now? I can definitely, you can definitely hear the connection. I think this is the record I would spend the most time with um, going forward as well. I'm with Kyle. I think it, starts to fall apart towards the second half. But man, the first half of those records are really good. Um, they Always Come is a good example. Just really sharp dynamics. Like, they sound tight. <clears throat> the guitar tone's there. Actually, like like the sound of the record. You know, it's... Um, it's gritty. It's got a lot of bass distortion on it. Jay's giving a little bit of space for the bass on this record. Like the guitar <laughs> tones aren't eating up everything. So it's a little unique in that way where you, you got punchy drums. You've got a good like low end from the bass. The guitars are big, but they're not engulfing everything. So it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's of the three from the eighties. It's the one I, I would go back to the most. It was, it was actually the, um, uh, the SST album, where up until I heard this album, all my experiences with SST up to this point had led me to believe that the record label just couldn't make an album that didn't sound like shit. Like it was yeah. just muddy. That was just going to happen. And I heard this album and I said, oh, okay, this actually sounds pretty good. And then uh, uh, around the time that I discovered this, I went back and started listening to uh, Descendants albums. And uh, like the Descendants' last SST album, um all uh, also you know 
pretty good sound for an SST album. So up until then, I just thought that everything was, you know, like really bad, like black flag sounding stuff. Um, not bad black flag sounding songs, just the, the, the recording and production quality right. of SST black flag stuff. I was just like, I don't know if I can do this, if I can keep doing this. Um, what the hell is this album cover? It is, um, my friend told me this, it is, uh, it's like a toy from the 80s or the 70s where, um, where you made things, you had like, um, like a gel or something that you would mix up and you would put it into a cast. Um, you, you put it into a mold and you would cast um, these different types of insects or different creatures oh, or whatever. Okay. And so I'm pretty certain that that's what that is. It's just, um, you know, got that uh, Lou Barlow um, motif, you know, that Lou right. Barlow, like, let's totally shred a picture before we put it on the cover of something and just make it look like absolute trash. It's, uh, I think it's the only record in the catalog that doesn't have one of the two iconic logos either. Like, all the others have the old, like, 60s style like hippie font and then they have the hand-drawn font and then this is one that's kind of like this weird i don't even what it is like scratched out of a mold it definitely has a different aesthetic yeah definitely um the uh when i got this when i got it i got this on cassette and i wish i still had it but if i remember correctly the thing that really was a sign to me that something like told me like, okay, this is when things went wrong with, you know, internally with the band is my cassette copy had nothing on the inside. Like, I swear if it had liner notes, it was studio and maybe producer and written by Jay Maskus. And that was about it. I think I remember actually reading the liner notes and thinking, Oh, Jay Maskus did this whole album by himself, um, <laughs> which, you know, happens later, but, uh, um, I thought, oh, this is another one he did by himself. But you know, when I listened to it more and more, I was like, no, it's definitely Lou Barlow playing the bass. Why didn't anybody get any credit on this album? Um, it might have just been that I just had a weird reprint of the of the cassette. I mean, it came out in 89, and I think I bought my copy in 93 or 94. I don't know. I just thought that was really strange. I mean, to me, it, it seemed to like be a marker. Like, oh, yeah, this is when yeah. it went down. I know what you mean when you when you go through like start going through a back catalog and you you pick up a cassette or a CD and it's like boy this is really sparse <laughs> this feels rushed like what what's the story here rushed or inexpensive yeah like yeah somebody was cutting their losses on this one every every drop of ink costs money Jay that's why um, so let me ask you guys how do you, how are you ranking the three albums like what's your top pick your number two pick and your number three pick of 80s albums by dinosaur jr jeremy let me start with you two three one two three one me, bug and dinosaur okay kyle ditto interesting all right jay uh reverse order bug you're living all over me dinosaur you like dinosaur the most right uh, yeah, that's uh, clearly no. I'm I'm with you. I'm three, two, one. Um, it's real close. I think the best songs of the '80s are on Bug, but I don't think it's the best, most consistent album. Because I do agree that the second half of that record is not as strong as as say "You're Living All Over Me." Um, but I don't think there's one particular strong song that's any better than. The first two, the first like five or six records on Bug. So that would be my pick as well. And for people who are, you know, maybe have only heard a little bit of Dinosaur Jr., uh, a lot of people in the 90s, they were only familiar because of Feel the Pain. Um, I feel like they could probably pick some songs out of here that they would like. Like there's a, there's a good mixtape of 80s pre pre single pre uh without a sound that you could put together for for someone and and it not be all white noise and you yeah. know terrible drums and and whatnot so and i think we all have have determined that 
you can hear where they were going. Even on the first record, you could hear the bits and pieces that are there, just like we could with Soundgarden. Like you could hear the tiny, you know, it evolved over the th- over the albums, but and it, and it's so cool because those are two bands that they get to a place that doesn't sound like anybody else. So to be right. able to have enough back catalog where you can actually hear that evolution, you know, most band, you know, not most, but some bands sound like that on the first record. It's like this is their sounds so where we're going to be. Got it. Okay, and then maybe it evolves a little bit, but the distinctive sound. So, but I think for both of those bands we've done so far, it's been like a prototype and then a baby step and another step and like two or three records. You're like, okay, here it is. And then this is something that like nobody else will can ever sound like. Not everybody can be Bush out the gate (laughs) or Weezer or Weezer. Um, Yeah. So speaking of saying Weezer is good. Speaking of, uh, of, of mixtapes of this period, um, this isn't necessarily a mixtape, mix but for anybody that is familiar or is getting familiar with, with the 80s stuff, um, just, again, just kind of a weird thing to check out. Um, there's this project that Jay Maskus did with um, Brett Nelson from uh, Built to Spill uh, called the, uh, what is it, Electronic Anthology Project. Uh, so oh, yeah. The electric and electronic anthology project of dinosaur jr um where he basically i, I guess i've seen i see like here i see it described as synth pop i don't know that's really the best description for it but it's uh um very unusual covers of eight songs from this period and then feel the pain is tacked on the end, uh the same in the same style um but it's just <laughs> Uh, it's it's a really odd listen. Um, so as long as you're messing with your ears and dipping back into the '80s and this other stuff you're uncomfortable with, um, maybe just uh, check that out. Um, if nothing else, it might give you a laugh. I'm gonna All right, on that gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on your Tuesday evenings and hanging out with us and talking some Dinosaur Junior. I was just looking through jay's solo releases because i forgot how many solo records he's put out i thought it was just the one he's actually had multiple solo releases um and there's like oh i forgot about that second jay masses in the fog album i remember the first one because bob pollard's on it from guided by voices i think and uh i forgot there was this hmm? martin and me is like oh yeah one of his first uh kind of solo acoustic live and i remember really liking that like his his, him with the acoustic yeah and his later like very produced um solo stuff that he's done you know kind of in and around the reformation of dinosaur jr some amazing stuff on that too um so if you're just sticking with dinosaur jr definitely branch out into the solo stuff um especially like i like the jay maskus and the fault stuff but his solo stuff that he does later on there are some amazing pieces on those albums. Um, you know, it's not all rocking, but I mean, slow stuff is cool. Well, I have a Jay Massis live at the CBGB where he does like an acoustic set. Which oh, is yeah. Cool. That came out in the 2000s, I believe. Yep. Yep. Yeah, he's also got a Peel session. Um, and uh yeah there's a whole i I didn't realize there's a bunch of collaborations and side project stuff and this is a band called heavy blanket which i haven't listened to i have that on vinyl actually is he singing and play guitar is he just i think he's on drums i'd have to pull it out somewhere it actually i'll have to find it i'll throw it on discord Excellent. All right, gents. Thank you so much. We um, appreciate your Dinosaur Junior knowledge and coming on and spending some time with us and look forward to more Dinosaur Junior talk over at Discord. Um, That's where people can go via our Patreon and join us for talks like this and you can vote, make these episodes happen. We'll do an 80s 
Origins episode next year. Maybe it'll be one of the bands that we didn't do this year. Maybe it'll be, you know, some other band that we haven't thought of yet. A lot of bands started in the 80s and made it big in the 90s. So we got a lot of ground to cover, as well as 90s bands that started out and made it big in the 2000s. That's our other Origins series, which we've done a whole bunch of those. And uh, Patreon, you go there via dmounion.com, digmeoutunion.com. Sign up. Become a patron. It's also where you can read the box newsletter, which is delivered every week via email, 80s and 90s, new releases, reviews of music, books, movies, TV shows, whatever comes out every week. Two new reviews plus the review review plus the release calendar. And then uh, you can also go to digmeoutpodcast.com not only to sign up for the box newsletter, but to suggest an album at our suggest an album form every week we are voting on albums it is a non-stop pandemonium election madness at uh, patreon.com if you like voting we are your kink <laughs> go pluto come get, come get weird with us <laughs> come get weird with us exactly <laughs> Uh, and last but not least, Apple Podcasts is where you go to leave some positive feedback for the for the podcast. So, Kyle, Jeremy, thanks once again for stopping by. For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. <laughs>